0: Podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. In today's topic, we will be discussing the match play scenario, Reconnoitre. And then in our open topic, we'll be talking about our favorite armies over 700 points. So in our main topic, we'll be discussing the match play scenario, Reconnoitre. Alexander, do you mind going over the scenario details, objectives, and special rules?
1: Alright, right, so we will skip right ahead to starting positions. Starting position for recon. The battle start. The forces are yet to arrive. Models are not deployed at the start of the game. Both players roll a d6. The player with the highest result chooses one of the long table edges to be their board edge. The opposing player has the opposite board edge. Objective. The game lasts until the end of a turn in which one force has been reduced to a quarter, 25%, of its starting number of models or below, at which point the force that has scored the most victory points wins the game. If both players have the same number of victory points, the game is a draw. Models that have escaped the board count as being on the board for the purpose of determining if a force is broken. Scoring victory points. You score three victory points if more of your models have escaped the battlefield via your opponent's board edge, then vice versa. If at least two of your models and twice as many models than your opponent have escaped the board, then you instead score five victory points. If at least three of your models and three times as many models than your opponent have escaped the board, then you instead score seven victory points. You score one victory point for causing one or more wounds on the enemy leader. Kill the enemy leader, you instead score two victory points. You score one victory point if the enemy force is broken at the end of the game. If the enemy force is broken, your force is unbroken, you instead score three victory points. Special Roles, Reinforcements. At the end of your move phase, roll a D6 for each of your warbands that are not on the battlefield. The warband's captain can use might to alter the roll. Models enter the board via the rules for reinforcements. Roll for each warband separately, deploy the models in the warband, then roll for the next. Warbands yet to arrive count as being on the battlefield for determining if your force is broken. Warbands that have still not arrived by the start of the fourth turn will automatically arrive on turn four. On a d6 roll of a 1 to a 3, the result is the warband does not arrive, but receives plus one to this dice roll next turn. On a 4 to a 6, the controlling player chooses a point on their board edge, at least six from a corner. All models in the warband move onto the battlefield from this point.
0: Okay, so... Does everyone generally like this scenario? Because personally, I'm a fan. I always like seeing it in a tournament pack.
1: I
2: don't like it for one reason, because I seem to be really bad at it. (laughs) But other than that, it's actually a pretty good scenario, I think. It's a classic one.
3: Yeah, I think I went through different stages with this scenario. I think starting out, learning the game, I didn't want to think about these weird objectives. I'm like... I just want to focus on killing. Like, what do you mean get models off the board to win the game? Like, that's stupid. And yeah, I, I just didn't want to get this one. But I think over the years, I have started to love this scenario. I think it's actually become one of my favorites because the 25% like end condition, which is really nice. So you can have, you know, you can plan around ending the game that way. And then also, yeah, it adds a different type of strategy to it. There's no other scenario like it. You know, some of the killy ones like Lords of Battle or To the Death sometimes can seem repetitive to each other or very similar, but there's nothing else like Reconnoiter. I
0: feel like it has the parts I love about Seize the Prize and what I like about Storm the Camp. I don't like most of Storm the Camp, but I like the idea of both players being on one side and then try to march the other side. But in this case, instead of just fighting to the death, you're trying to get off the board. Fighting is a part of it, but... I do like the idea of not necessarily needing to beat out your opponent to win. I think it's interesting also how there's a little bit of randomization in terms of deployment. So it's not completely like old ground, like you could appear on any board edge, like you know which board edge you're gonna appear on. So it's a little more consistent, but you, sometimes you find that parts of your army are coming into the game at once. And instead of just having your entire army right at the beginning, so you kind of have to learn to do with what you're given and the decision making in the early game is really interesting because you have to decide am i going to start just moving at breakneck speed towards the opposite board edge to try to get off as soon as possible or am i going to sit close to the edge and be the defensive player uh, as my opponent comes towards me and kind of play goalie sort of prevent any enemy models from touching the board edge i really like that part of the game whether you're the one that's maybe has fewer numbers and you rather stay back and prevent your opponent from getting off, or you're the one with the fast-moving models that you're trying to get off, sneak off the
1: table. Just a little side point to that. One thing that I really enjoy about the scenario is when I first started playing. I think a, a common misconception about this particular scenario is that you need to find a way to run half your army or your whole army off the far board edge. And in reality, you often I find that combat starts occurring either at or just over center on either side of the board. And the player that wins often wins by getting like two or four more models off the board because of that conflict. So it's really interesting seeing how someone that will play defensively and just kind of throws three or four models out there and starts trying to stay behind cover and weave in and out of places and get closer to the opponent's board edge, how you can win a game with just like two or three models getting over the uh, board edge from time to time.
2: I will say my enjoyment of this scenario, I feel, goes up a lot more when you're not really fighting for time in, like, a tournament setting when you're playing this, and that kind of varies on depending on points limit and time limit, but if you have a fairly tight time limit trying to play this one, purely because you're starting off, you know, at your table edges, it just takes a lot of time for things to start happening. So I think, unfortunately, more often than not, it, it comes down to, like, whoever can get a few VPs just for, like, breaking the enemy maybe or kill it or kill getting a wound on the enemy leader and maybe slipping a guy off rather than, like, big plays happening.
3: Yeah, I think I, think I still remember a couple games against you, Ian, where I think you chose to play a more defensive-style strategy, and you pretty much wiped me off the board. I think what you were going for was wiping me off the board and then running a lot of models off. But, like, because of the 25% end condition... I was able to pull it out because I was the aggressor and we were fighting more on your end. And then also as well, in a, like you said, in a tournament setting, it's very unlikely that you'll get to the point where you quarter the opponent and you have the time to go from your side and run to the other side. Richard, I got to say, it still bugs me to this day that a
2: full stat solid end couldn't take on two Mirkwood Knights. <laughs> it still hurts. <laughs>
0: What do you guys think are some characteristics an army needs to have to excel in this scenario or like or like utility that you're looking for? March. That's a good one. And also war drums, cavalry, basically anything that can help your army move more quickly. But aside from like the obvious one, I think one thing that really helps is if you already come into the game knowing whether you're going to be the one that's going to move across the map or the one that's going to be defending that helps because then you can kind of commit all in into that strategy so like when i when i'm deploying my first warband i know what my enemy has and i know who has more models who has better shooting and who should be the one that's going to be moving forward and usually you can tell that by just like knowing your movement value and your model count usually that'll be enough to help you determine which role you're going to play because let's say you're playing like a dwarf list or like hobbits or something you know the map is 48 inches long And if it's going to take you at least 10 turns to move off, you can kind of roughly estimate in your head, like, okay, well, games usually last eight to 10 turns. So I'm very unlikely to move models off before the end of the game. So then maybe you decide to play a defensive role and try to break your opponent and gain VP that way. I think knowing what you're going to do that game at the start of deployment is really important.
2: Two things. The first one I would say is because of what we talked about, how this one can be really tight on time and end up as low scoring games. If you know it's going to come up in an event package, it's nice to have, like, a leader who's really hard to take wounds. I mean, obviously, that's always a nice thing to have, but I feel like this one especially, because those points can be worth, like, a lot if you don't get anybody off the board, right? Second thing is, I've heard people say before that it's almost always worth it to spend points of might to get on the board in the first turn, or if not the first turn, then the second turn. How do you guys feel about that?
1: I mean, I I think it certainly helps being able to get as much of your army on in the first turn as possible, just because, like Charles said, determining whether or not you're going to defend or attack. I often find, you know, a lot of the time I get half my army on in the first turn, and then the other half kind of slowly comes on over the next two turns. And when that happens, you get stuck in a position where you could have been the offensive team, you could have been the defensive team and now you're just kind of some shallow wash in between, and it it becomes tough to really determine whether you're going to go or stay. I think it definitely makes it harder if your army comes on in a very scattered manner.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with what both of you guys have said. I think you need your army to fully come on within the first two turns. I think compared to the other, like, I guess, maelstrom scenarios, it might seem not as important because, you know your enemies might be beside you and you might be uh, stuck in combat right away. So this one seems like a less dire situation getting on the board. But I actually think if you're, yeah, like Charles said, like if you're planning your movement ahead, especially if you don't have like an all-cav army or like a much faster army than your opponent, then I think you're really pressed to come on to the first two turns. Yeah, exactly. If you're playing defensive,
0: most likely, your opponent won't be within bow range in the first turn anyway, so there's less pressure to come on right away. If you're the one that's going to be marching across the board and and your hero with your march didn't come on, then I'd probably use that might so that you can march that 9 inches that you would have delayed to the next turn uh, if that hero wasn't there. So it depends on the situation, but if you want to get moving then it's worth spending, especially if you didn't come on on the first turn. I would definitely consider using might on the second turn.
3: Well, I don't know about spending it on your heroic march hero, because if it's a captain and you only have two might, you're burning one to at least one to come on, then you only have one march on him. So, I don't know, you're you're essentially gaining three inches from one turn of movement versus an extra march for infantry. So, I'm not sure, but maybe. I don't know if I would do that if it's like for a captain level hero and you need to spend a might to come on. Yeah, I
0: agree with you if your hero is like a two might hero. Three might hero, maybe. You also wouldn't necessarily march right away. Sometimes I'll like to walk into bow range and then march. So it reduces the number of turns that you're shot at rather than just deploying and then march right away. Yeah, but I agree with you. You don't want to drain all your <laughs> all your might on just your hero's first turn on the board. That's definitely not great. And heroes that can boost that number, like Madrille, uh, Gurritz, they, they get the plus one. And then obviously like Strider, heroes that have that one might a turn, they're they're really great for this. The first time they roll, they come on a three plus instead of a four plus. Okay, so each of us have brought a list today all 800 points for new listeners. You can find all of our lists on our Facebook page to search into the West podcast, we post all of the lists there so that you can follow along while you listen and we'll also be reviewing these lists in the context of other games in mind, rather than just playing this particular scenario. Let's start with Richard's list first with his 800 point list.
3: Okay. So before I go, I guess I have a disclaimer for my list. At the time of the recording, this is before the new Easterling supplement, so if there's some sort of, like, Dragon God Emperor that's, like, seven attacks for 100 points, no, I didn't put him in my list, even though he's an auto-take. And this list was actually inspired by Mitchell Hammond, so he was a previous guest and one of the hosts of the Duren Show. He's played this list a couple times against me, and not just in Recon, so I was uh, I was surprised at how strong and effective it was. So, to start out, I have the Condish King as my leader on chariot, leading five Condish horsemen. In the second warband, I have a Condish chief on chariot, leading five Condish horsemen. And in the third warband, we have Allying in Amdur on armored horse, leading five Easterling warriors with shield, four with shield and pike, one with shield pike banner, and three with shield, pike, and black dragon upgrade and an easterling cataphract with a war drum and in my last warband i have a dragon knight mounted on an armored horse leading three black dragons with shield and pike and three black dragons with shield and this comes to a total of 34 models and 800 points so i guess we forgot to talk about how important like numbers are in recon but i will say even though the numbers aren't the highest here I think I make up with mobility. So both the Condish heroes have Pyrrhic March. I have 10 cavalry warriors, and then all four of my heroes are essentially 10-inch move heroes. And then I have a Easterling Drum for my Easterling Infantry Division. So they're moving extremely quickly for infantry every single turn. Mostly defense six all the way around. And I think even though the Condish horsemen are only defense four, From my experience, they're not too bad for their points cost. They're fight four, they have an axe. And honestly, because of the different amount of threats in this list, I feel like, you know, I, I don't even mind if they're shot at. And most likely, my heroes will be the target of most archery. So I think this list just gets in your face really, really quickly. And of course, like if you come up against like a defense seven shield wall, it might be a bit tougher. But aside from that, I've seen how effective and how hard this list hits. Like, you don't realize. And I think depending on the terrain for this, for the board, I think the chariots can be really effective as well because, you know, like most opponents in Reconnoitre want to be coming to you and also getting past you. But if you're clogging up these lanes between terrains, these choke points and just pushing your chariot through, there's not much space. You know, so it's either you go through a chariot or you go through a pike phalanx. And honestly, 10 cav. you know how, like we just said, like, you know, people are lucky enough to get two or three models can win you the game off in reconnoiter. Well, it's extremely easy to throw five cavalry for me to run, try to pass them and see how the opponent defends. And if they want to defend that, it'll take a lot more resources to stop five Condish horsemen, which are only 65 points. So, yeah, that's my list. And I think I just want to say as well, like when I played against this list, it was never in reconnoiter. So I think it's very strong in reconnoiter. But even at a tournament with other scenarios, it can definitely perform.
1: I mean, I've got to say, you know, I thought I had a decent amount of mobility in my list that I brought for this week. And then you posted yours and I was like, yeah, I guess mine's fine. No, you're going to do fine in this scenario, especially with the drum. Your opponent automatically has to play defense, and playing defense in this scenario is not easy because they have a battlefield-wide target to run at, so you know they're not going to be able to stop something moving that quickly. In other scenarios, too, with um, anything with objectives that you have to take, you're going to be okay going out and taking the objectives. I think in other scenarios, the only thing I'd worry about would be the numbers, but like you've illustrated you have four pretty big threats, and that's before you get into the uh, cavalry contingent. So it's not going to be an easy list to bring down in any scenario in the game.
3: Oh, and I just want to add on to Ian's point earlier saying that you want like a defensive hero. And that's why I made the Connish King my leader. He's actually surprisingly tanky on the chariot. The defensive bulwark is just incredibly annoying to try to get wounds through.
0: So uh, I think while you were going over your list, it brought up a point that I forgot to make earlier when we were reviewing this scenario. And that is that having killing power shouldn't be underestimated because I feel like even if you aren't able to run off any models off the board because of your lower numbers, if you score full points on the other two objectives, so you break your opponent without breaking and you kill the enemy leader, that's 5 VP. And your opponent has to get double the amount of models off the board to tie you so it's actually not a terrible game for you, you know, if you don't run any models off or you only run one or two you have two pretty good hero assassins Amder and the clonish king i think i think the numbers is it's obvious that it's your biggest weakness 34 models is i would say it's below average for 800 points i guess the only thing i would do to buff that, that model count would be to drop the banner since you have like a six inch banner effect for your condish models and then Amder also can potentially have a banner effect so you have like other kind of rerolls rolls that you can get i'm just wondering if it would be worth dropping to get up to 36 but other than that i really like this list i think like you said about the easterling supplement coming i'm sure we're going to get stuff that's that makes easterlings more viable I don't know if Easterlings are capable of like a tournament favor to win army list, but I think it's as close to that as you can get with this kind of alliance and this kind of build.
2: I mean, you look at the numbers and it is it is kind of scary, but then you go, in, oh, there's what, 14-ish Cav in there? And then the infantry you have are going to be moving nine inches a turn anyway. It's a lot of mobility. I don't know. I quite like it. Wait, do the Candish Horsemen come with bows, or the they axes?
3: They got bows and axes.
2: Ooh, okay, so yeah, you got a bit and of I, shooting in
3: there and Skirmishing. Let me check, I think it's Hand and a Half Axe, too. I'm pretty sure. Fight
2: 4, Strength 3, but I remember they have axes, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, they can still hit really hard. I like it, because it gives you a lot of different ways to play the scenario. Like, if you just want to go for the killing in the leader, you can, because you got a lot of hitting power with all your heroes. And then if you want to try and break off, you have tons of things that can move quickly. You just have a lot of options, which is really nice. I quite like this, actually, for uh, for a Reconnoiter. It's looking, looking
0: pretty good. Okay. Ian, do you want to go over your list next?
2: Sure. So, yeah, mine is like... Well, we all kind of had the same philosophy, but I guess when I was building this, as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to have, make sure I have a leader who uh, doesn't take wounds easily, so... That really influenced my choice. And also, because you start on the opposite table edges, shooting can play a pretty big factor. So having defense against that is also quite nice. So with that said, my first warbend and my army leader is uh, Galadriel. And she has six Galadriel warriors with shield, uh, six Galadriel warriors with bow, one warrior with spear, shield, and a banner, three guards of the Galadriel court, and one Galadriel knight with shield. And then to back her up from the high elf list... I have the twins with heavy armor and horses, and they have five high elves with spear and shield in their warband. And then my last warband is Gildor, and he has six exiles with spear and throwing daggers, and six exiles with bow. So, basically, the twins I chose over the other big heroes in the high elf list because I just wanted extra might, and I also wanted to have two strikers who can go off and tackle separate threats if I need to, or lead a flank, lead some troops with the flank. And then obviously the, uh, the, the more controversial pick, as, as everybody's going to tell me, is uh, Gildor. But, you know, I decided to try and make it work again. I think 13 move 8 elves is, is a pretty nice threat for this scenario. And also it just gives you a lot of stuff like play for the objectives in other scenarios as well. So yeah, like Gildor and the guys with the throwing spears and daggers, they can try and run up a flank, they can support my main line, and then the bows can kind of sit back and just pick off things that are going for the edges, and if things try to make a break for my table edge, I have a little response force that moves pretty quickly with those, uh, what else with bows. Yeah. Oh, I guess I should give you the totals. Uh So that's 800 points on the nose, 38 models, which is 20 dead to break, 12 bows, 6 throwing daggers, and 10 might.
0: I like this list. I wouldn't have minded if you just went with a Rivendell list, but I guess you wanted Galadriel in there. I actually don't have much to say. I think it's it's got, you know, what you need to do well in, in Recon. I guess maybe I would put the Wood Elf Spears on the Exiles onto the Bowmen instead of the Throwing Daggers, because the Throwing Daggers, you're going to be throwing them into combat half the time. Well, I guess you could Shield with the Spears, so it doesn't matter that much, I guess. But but I like your Hero Choices I think your numbers could be a little higher, especially when, like, a full Warband of them are Defense 3. I think it might be better if you're at, like, the 40 mark, but, again, it's just splitting hairs. Yeah, I think generally it's a,
1: it's a good list. I never know what to say about Gildor and the Exiles, and this is far from the first time you've brought them into a list for one of our episodes. I can't speak terribly of them because you've beat me with them before, so I, I really shouldn't. They're low defense, which is obviously scary, having the extra move in this scenario specifically is never bad, and it's never bad in any objective-based scenario. Two or three episodes ago, I brought a few Galadriel Knights, and I love the pick for this scenario, just because you can go full speed through anything. Hero choices, I like. Galadriel is never a bad pick, and the twins both mounted with heavy armor. I'd be a little worried about sending them off in opposite directions in case one of them dies and you end up with a rogue twin running around at full speed trying to get somewhere that isn't the board edge. But, you know, two mounted strong combat heroes in this scenario is always a good thing. Aside from that, pretty standard elf lists. Like it a fair bit. I think the the exiles are a bit of a question mark at Defense 3, but, you know, it's the style choice and the risk that you run playing that list.
3: Yeah, I disagree with that, Alex. Uh, I don't think this is the run-of-the-mill elf list. Um, I'm proud of you, Ian. You broke the mold. <laughs> no, I, I like the picks for this one. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe it'll, it can do okay in other scenarios, in a full tournament pack. I would have to think more on that. But for Recon, I think this definitely does the job. I think these are all specialized picks. Like Gladriel in Lothlorien, you kind of have to build around her a little bit. The Twins, like we talked about in the past, they're not auto-takes. And Gildor, especially, um, definitely a niche pick, but I think they work really well here. And you got, you know, 38 Elves, so that's that's always going to be scary.
2: The one thing in this list, to the credit of the Twins, is that I do have two immobilizes, which is really handy if they get into trouble, because they, like, they're not the biggest hitters, but...
3: I, I think I would... Unless you really need to immobilize, I think I would save that one might on Gildor for the march. Because I think you could take an opponent in by surprise. And I wouldn't just march up just to march up. I think this might be one of those things where you're trying to make a break for the enemy board edge. And, you know, no one sees Gildor ever around. So they're like, they don't expect that sudden 11-inch movement from your infantry, you know, gunning for the board edge. And they won't be able to catch up.
1: Is that part of Ian's strategy? just the pure shock of seeing gildor and being like what impact is this going to have on the whole game because yeah you don't see him much and then you know he casts spells and it's something that i don't think anyone sees coming and then all of a sudden he casts immobilize or something and you just kind of you're like well where did that come from it's like him the guy no one takes
0: okay i'll go over my list next okay so my list is corsairs of Umbar and isengard alliance this sounds weird saying it because I I don't know if I've seen this alliance before, but I'll just go through it first. Uh, my leader is Dalamir, Fleetmaster of Umbar, and he's leading seven Black Numenorians, three Corsairs with Spear and Shield, two Corsairs with Spear, and six Corsair Arbalesters. Second warband is Lurts, and he's leading four Curbane, five Urkai with Shield, three Urkai with Pike, one Urkai with Banner and Pike and two urukai with crossbow. Last Warband is Rasku, leading seven urukai with crossbow, one urukai Berserker, and two Kribane. So 800 points, that's 46 models, and eight Might. I chose this alliance because I like the idea of having Dalamir as the leader. There are not that many heroes that are as hard to take down on the evil side as Dalamir and I like the idea of mixing in warriors from that army because they're known for being undercosted, such as Corsairs and Black Numenorians. I'm not so worried about losing the Backstabbers army bonus because I don't have too many Corsairs in the army. And you mix this with Isengard, who has two things that I really like. One is Cribane, the cheapest flyer in the game, 20 points. And because of how cheap they are, I was able to fit six of them in this list. And also is Find the Halflings rule, which allows him to deploy automatically on the first turn. And I think that's great considering we discussed how important it is to come on as early as possible. So you're guaranteed one Warband automatically. The crossbow provides enough uh, firepower that most of my opponents will have to come to me. I don't think I would win every shoot war, especially one with Blinding Light, but I think with 17 crossbow shots, it'll probably win most of the shoot war. And the Cribane because they move 12 inches, I can engage my enemy with my full army and wrap around with my flyers and just fly them off close to the end of the game. And so I think Recon is one of those scenarios where this list is less likely to struggle. And I think I would comfortably bring this to a tournament, you know, in the context of like all the other scenarios as well. Yeah, what do you guys think?
1: What I think is six Cribane are really annoying. That's a lot of flying there, Charles. You know, people are like, oh, man, well, things will slow down when we get into combat. It's like, sure, with everything except those six models, that are just going to fly around annoying things and getting off the board edge and, you know, causing distractions. I don't like crows. They're, they're smart, <laughs> but I don't like. And you can't shoot them either. They scatter. You can't. They, they're tough to hit. It, they get it's everywhere. Good. <laughs> I don't like crows. They're coarse and rough and get everywhere. <laughs> well, that's it. It's not a bad point about
2: them getting everywhere though, because like honestly, as soon as you get all six of them on the board, you just spread them out equally in like a line across the board and run them up. And I think you're guaranteed to get at least like one or two off. Like I don't really see a way that your opponent's gonna be able to lock them all down.
0: Yeah, so the firing line of crossbows, I think they'll stay relatively close to my edge. And I think as long as I can have three cribane fly off and prevent anyone from getting off, or more than one model, get off my board edge, then I would score seven points on the run-off-the-board edge VP. That would guarantee me the win. Yeah,
2: it's it's quite... I really like it because it is. It's you're basically you're gonna put pressure on your opponent immediately by running the the up, and they're not gonna be able to shoot them. The only way they can stop them is if they lock them down in combat, and then you can just start picking stuff off with the crossbows if they try to run things off. So it's it's very well built for this scenario with that many flying models that you can't really shoot.
3: Yeah, you have really good model count too. Ridiculously amount of flyers. This is a stupid list for recon like. But <laughs> stupidly good. But I guess what I'm afraid of is in a full tournament pack. I think it can still work, but you don't really have answers to some like really really big threats, like like say an Elindil or like a LSR. I think the only answer that you have is you have to try to shoot them off the horse with the crossbows. Otherwise, I feel like you would just get smashed with your heroes because it it kind of reminds me of just like, you know, the Urkai spam, right? Where it can be good, but it's a little bit one-dimensional is like a lot of crossbows and then a lot of uh, fight for strength 4, but if big mounted heroes get into your line, then, you know, they're just going to take you out by hero combats. If <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So so I'm saying like you're depending on the crossbows, right? But it, I'm just saying if that doesn't work then. Do you think I could stall big heroes with Krebain? I think in our Dunlin episode, we mentioned that as,
0: like, a really annoying tactic, but if you're fighting a a three-attack hero mounted on the charge, they can technically take down two Krabane a turn if they roll really well, so... It depends if they're charging,
2: and you don't have any Cav to shut down charge
3: bonuses in there, do you? I don't
0: don't have Cav, no. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean I guess you can shoot into combat with your crossbows to try to dehorse them. And and you, your Corsair's got throwing weapons too, so you can do you can always do that. So yeah, I mean I guess you're not defenseless. I mean I think it's a really solid I'm just saying that I think this list is almost undefeatable in recon, I would say, but maybe a little bit more defeatable in, in other scenarios. Like a straight up fight. Yeah.
0: Okay, and then the final list of the day. Let's go over Alexander's
1: list. So I brought uh, 800 points of Gondor. I have Denethor, four warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, four with shield and spear, one guard of the fountain court with shield, one knight of Minas Tirith with shield, three rangers with spear, Boromir, captain of the White Tower with a banner, horse, and shield, three warriors of Minas Tirith with shield, four with shield and spear, two knights with shield two rangers with spear, madril, three warriors with shield, four with shield and spear, three rangers with spear, and her and the tall with horse, three warriors with shield, four with shield and spear, one knight with shield, and two rangers with spear. That's 800 points, 48 models total, 12 might, 10 bows, plus madril. Ultimately, Went for at least the the two mounted heroes. Obviously, Boromir's pretty tough to bring down. Hurrim, not only because he was mounted and a decent combat hero, but because he he makes getting the leader kill VPs much tougher to get, especially if he gets off the board edge, that makes it impossible. I like the numbers. I think I've got a decent amount of mobility in the list, not as much as maybe Charles or Richard, but at the same time, enough, I think, to win me a tight game. Madril, for obvious reasons, we even talked about him in the general scenario discussion. His special role makes the whole army just that much easier to get on the board. And then from there, you know, with Shield Wall and and Shields, the troops just kind of, they're there to, to play defense and clog up holes and just kind of die slowly while my two big heroes do probably most of the offensive work. And then just trying to get a knight or two or one of the heroes off the board kind of how i imagine a recon list in general that's it
0: i don't really have anything bad to say about this one i think you have a pretty good list here that can handle the scenario i think just one thing around the boromir build is i'd probably take more fight four warriors so in particular i mean guards of the fountain court maybe take three or four more because i see that you've got one uh just so you have a few more fight five and guaranteed defense seven I know we all like to think of shield wall as defense seven, but you don't always end up that way when fights are split up. So Guard of the Fountain Corps is still really well worth it. Yeah, I think it's really good in this scenario because as soon as Madrill is deployed, the rest of your army comes on on a three plus and then a two plus the following turn. So it's a good might saver if you were planning on using might to come off the board. It gets all of your warbands deployed pretty consistently. That's pretty much all I have to say.
2: I've just want to say this is probably gets the, the props out of all of our lists for being the most realistic list you would see. Like, I'm pretty sure I've seen this list at a tournament before. <laughs> it also just turns out that it is, like, really good at um at recon. Like, it has everything that you need. So,
3: I like it. Good list, Alex. Good list.
1: Richard's just nodding. That's the extent of his analysis. It, 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 before he even turned on the microphone, he was just like, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good. That's good. Next comment.
0: I mean, taking Bormir and Denether together, you remove Denether's broken mind, right? So there's Denether, but with no downsides. Okay, I guess the next thing is ranking these lists. So out of these four lists, what are your guys' thoughts on, like, the strongest in Recon, if you were to come up in a tournament?
2: Yeah, you know, I was pretty happy with my list when I wrote it up, and then I saw you guys start posting yours, and I was like, damn. Damn, these are good. <laughs> Way less yeah. confident.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think this is actually like a strong force submission. Yeah, it, this is actually really hard. I think these are all very viable and very strong in Reconnoiter. I think my analysis was a little bit more telling. I think I'm looking at Charles's as the slight front runner just because he has all the aspects that we're kind of looking for. He's got high numbers, he's got good shooting, he's got the marches. And he's got six birds. I don't know, like, I don't know what else you're kind of looking for in Recon. I
2: did miss one thing, though,
3: that you guys reminded me of. I have no Cav, and
0: you were saying that, you know, if I encounter a big hero, it might be a problem. You do have to worry about combat, too, in this scenario. And I think if I was to face, like, you know, <laughs> like a gil Glad or something, uh, that could be a, a weakness. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'll lose against that list, but I'll have problems probably stopping the heroes. That, that's my only worry. Which I didn't think about before until uh until you brought it up.
2: Blinding light actually is, is could be a big issue for you as well. Cause if they can just run like a big ball of troops up the middle of the table and then kind of stop any of your guys trying to get off besides the Craven, like you I think you're still gonna get Craven off in almost like every game. Like it's it's on like it's pretty much a guarantee. Like, at least one or two. But, yeah, if somebody, go, like, goes at you with, like, Blinding Light and a big hero, that's going to be... that They could very well try and, like, get off, like, make five to ten models run through Portage. Just in a, in a ball.
3: I guess I'm thinking more in, like, a tournament setting. Because it's, like, the flyers are, like, guaranteed you're going to get a couple off. And you can also use the flyers to play defense, and they're tanky enough to stall. So, I would say, like, this... Maybe if it was, like, an infinite amount of time kind of game, then I think Charles's list might have more weaknesses. But in, like, a timed event, he can stall, though. And not in the way that, like, you slow play, but, like, you can throw your forces and fight in a way where you're not trying to break the opponent, but you're just trying to, like, play defense and, you know, drag it out for more turns. But I don't know. What do you guys think about the other list? Or do you guys have, like, another favorite? I think Alex's is is really good, but I think his is the most well-rounded out of all of ours. I think his probably is the most consistently that will perform in the rest of the tournament pack. But I think ours are probably more built for recon specifically. Mm, I like how his
0: has really consistent deployment. Because I think none of us took like Gerrit's or anything, and mine only applies to Gurritz's Warband, while his applies to his whole army, assuming Madrill comes on turn one. Richard, your list has two heroic marches and the most cav. So I think in this scenario, you'd probably do better. You probably have like a, an advantage over Alex's list, but I don't know if you guys would agree. I think if Alex. I don't know if I would give Alex a higher score in terms of this scenario if he took more shooting, or do you think that if you played Alex's list, you would go on the offensive and you would march?
3: I would for sure go on the offensive, because I don't have any bows. Well, I have bows, but it's like Condish Horseman bows. I think the issue against my list versus Alex's is what I said. He actually counters me with a lot of defense seven, so I think when I play him, I don't think I would try to break him at all. I think I would try to get some of my Condish horsemen off, really bog him down with my Easterling block without dying too much. And if I can assassinate Denethor for a victory point or two, I'll do that. But otherwise, I won't go too crazy. But I'm definitely pushing up with the drum, the marches, and everything.
0: Do you think Alex's list would be stronger if he went more for the defense? Like if he went for more shooting or like a trebuchet or something?
2: maybe if he just maxed out the bows i don't know if a trebuchet or bolt thrower would be necessary but he could get up to 15 bows plus madril
3: i'm surprised there wasn't any siege weapons because i was considering a trebuchet if i brought gondor i think it would be a good pick because you you'd be you'd be shooting from turn one you'd be threatening a lot and then you know occasionally they'll try to run like a model or two On the side, and if you can't like spare the resources, you have a good shot of like killing one model that is running away, right? Four up and then a three up. Yeah, no scatter. Yeah, so because because most I guess runners won't be multi-wounded models, like unless you're playing Charles with his carbine.
2: But even then, the trebuchet would insta
0: kill, wouldn't it?
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, So (laughs) unless it's a hero, I guess. Yeah, instant kill.
0: Yeah, and yeah. a lot of the times, Trebuchet don't need to take in the ways, and I don't know, depending on the terrain, if there's a choke, the crewmen can kind of defend the board edge, too, a little bit.
2: Oh, yeah, you can place it uh, horizontally across part of the board, you know, yeah. put it between two pieces of terrain, Go no, 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 you've got to go around.
3: <laughs> put yeah. the Trebuchet on a massive base.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh. Okay, what well, about so between Ian and Alexander's lists?
2: Uh, I like... Again, like if we're going for like a general tournament, I think mine's a little bit more specified than his, so I think he gets the points for that.
0: If you can use woodland creature though, yeah. Then then you wouldn't have to run you could maybe run straight instead of running around forests and you might be better in that situation. But you have one might for Heroic March. Alexander has three. So
2: Well that is the the nice thing about having the movement, eight guys, is you don't need to spend it on March.
0: Yeah. Right. Because
2: I'm still moving faster than him over the course of multiple turns. But
3: yeah, I expected Ian's list to have more than 12 bows.
2: <laughs> you would think, right?
3: I I think what I like about Ian's list is as well, like um, Galadriel. He's the only one with magic out of us, and the command is a good defensive tool as well. You know, her like control range. She can move six, and then and then like compel something within 12. So you got to like you got to be running on the edges to try to avoid her.
2: And then there's what else running at you as well, or trying to shoot Mm you. I think mine's reasonably defensive. I don't know if I could
0: get through his list while assuming we're playing each other, but uh, I don't know. It feels weird because I like Ian's list, but I might have to give third place to Alex. Like I think they're both really good lists, but I yeah, I I just think Madrill is really good in recon.
1: If it helps sway you, I'd give me third place too.
0: Voice agreement in there, hey? <laughs> <laughs> Do it. <laughs> All right, listeners, let us know if you agree with our ranking and what you think of our lists.
2: Who was first? Did, did we give it to Charles?
0: Well, I think Richard said he wanted to give it to me, and then I don't think I heard from you too.
1: <laughs> I mean, I just kind of like nodded in agreement that Charles has the indefensible recon list. So
3: Charles yeah. just took it and ran.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, he I mean, took like... it in flu. Are you kidding? Look at. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I guess so, because overall, like, I I still really like Richard's one, just like the amount of movement in it. But the fact that with Charles's, you're basically guaranteed to get models off the board, and then that just puts pressure on. Yeah, that's, that's big.
3: The funny thing is, like, I think Charles's is probably maybe better than mine in Recon, but I would say if I got to play him, I think I would do well against Charles's list, though. Because, like, my whole army is moving ridiculously fast. He's not going to get too much shots at me. And then the chariots are going to, I feel like, do work on Corsairs and Urkai with the D4 and D6. So, and then, like, I think my heroes trump his heroes. So I think, like, he would actually be kind of scared of my army. But I think overall, against, like, other armies, I think I'm giving Charles the edge in Recon. But I think my army can take his, though
2: if you can get all your heroes and if you can get like the two chariots and then the two other mounted heroes in if they stay mounted yeah you're going to do a lot
0: of work against it but
2: i don't know there's a lot of defense for horsemen in there and a lot of crossbows just kind of eyeing
0: them up if only Lertz was able to throw his shield outside of that legendary legion you know that would, that would, <laughs> he would be a lot better against mounted heroes <laughs> um yeah i think in a straight up fight i can see richard doing really well against me if it's more of an open table I could try to shoot down his horsemen, because I'd be wounding them on fours with my crossbows, but other than that, there aren't really, like, really good targets for me, for my shooting. I have the smoke bomb, which helps me to fight heroes, but, again, that... Helps you fight the Dragon Knight? (laughs) Yeah, it (laughs) only only works if your enemy has no will, right? Yeah, so, that'd be the Dragon Knight. Yeah, anything else you guys want to say about any of the four lists? I was just going to say,
3: La number one! Number one, (laughs) La
0: All right, let's move on to our open topic. So in today's open topic, we'll be talking about our favorite armies over 700 points and we'll kind of go over what are some things that make an army good at essentially 700 points is what we're categorizing as like larger games and larger armies i guess to just to start i want to say that usually when we rate and review an army and think about its strengths and weaknesses i don't know about you guys but this is the range of points that i think about when i think whether something is competitive something's good i usually in my head i'm thinking like 700 800 points is that the same for you guys?
2: Seems to be the average at least. Well, I, I don't even know if I'd say locally. I'd say well, like most of North America, like 800 seems to be the like the pretty common competitive points value.
0: Yeah, because I feel like if something is good at lower points, we'll say it's good at lower points. But the default seems to be this points range, like 700, 800, when we talk about it. I guess you might be right. It might be the most popular or more popular than the lower points. So um, what are some things that are good or that are really strong in higher point armies?
2: I feel like once you get up to this kind of points level, it is way easier to get a list that has a bit of everything in it. So you get lists that, that can take on every threat. They might not be really good against hyper-specialized lists, but they can take on most lists reasonably well. And at lower points levels, you, you don't get that. You get a lot more lists that are only like really good at one thing or the other.
3: Yeah, so... I agree with you, and and I think that leads to lists that are just bigger and more variety of models in Heroes and Warriors. Those tend to be more viable in larger competitive games, right? If we're talking about, you know, if you're going to take a peer list like, you know, Minas Tirith, Mordor, since pretty much the beginning of the game has been viable competitive options due to their variety.
1: So something that I was thinking of over the last week or so, thinking about this topic, was just the idea of how we've talked about Legendary Legions and how the limitations in troop and hero availability means that they usually don't scale so well. You kind of start to see them weaken after five, 600 points. So I apply the same kind of mentality towards a lot of different lists, where if, for instance, Mordor is, I think, my perfect example, it has a wide range of different heroes. They can do a number of different things. You've got different levels of troops with different skill sets and and where they're valuable. So that type of army, or like Gondor as well, especially allied in with fiefdoms, just Something where you had that ability at higher points to fill different gaps, whereas maybe Easterlings, especially Easterlings, the way we know them from the beginning of this edition, where it's kind of like, well, you have two, you have one type of troop, really, with one upgrade and cavalry, and you have a couple of different heroes. But once you've used that, your army gets very redundant. And it starts to be limited by what it can and can't do. And when you hit that points level against certain types of threats, your army just doesn't have the range to handle it anymore.
0: I think in comparison to our open topic last week, it's interesting to think about. And because last time, last episode, we were kind of talking about being able to fit as much utility as you can in lower points. And now it's like armies with access to the most utility, to the most like value picks are typically the stronger ones. So it feels like to me at lower points, it takes a lot more decision making and skill to write like a really strong list. Not to say there isn't skill required to write a larger list, but I feel like it's more about a lot of it comes down to how you play, how the player is in game especially when you get to a 1,000 points. A lot of armies you see will have everything, you know. Most armies will have, like, March, they'll have Cav, they'll have heroic Strike, and a lot of them might even have, like, good shooting siege weapons. And a lot of it comes down to knowing how to utilize it and comes down to player behind the list.
3: Yeah, I would just say as well, I actually think, like, compared to, like, smaller points, in the larger points, if we're just talking about pure lists, I think a lot less armies are viable. Because I think we talked about, you know, like the Hammer Hand Legion, or if you're going to go Arnor, like these smaller lists with like one or two effective heroes, but then named heroes. But then after that, it just drops off to Captain and one warrior type. Like Alex said, then you can't deal with these different kinds of threats at a larger points if you're just going to spam one model type, even if they're a very efficiently priced model. So I feel like, yeah, if you're going to go with a pure list, there's only certain factions that are viable and bigger points. I think the only exception you can make for armies
0: that just spam out captains and are still really viable are if the warriors are under-costed. I'm thinking like Corsairs. They can spam out captains and captains and just warbands, and that would still be competitive.
2: They have a couple options for heroes, though, right? That make it more interesting. Like
0: after they max out all their named heroes, and they're just down yeah. Um, yeah, I
2: mean, I guess dwarves can kind of do the same thing. Like, they don't really have. They have a lot of unique heroes and a lot of named heroes, I guess.
0: The other one I was thinking of was Goblin Town. I I don't know if they're at their strongest at like a thousand points. Maybe not, but they can just spam out unnamed captains all day. And, you know, they seem to be pretty, pretty strong in the meta. I think when you're
3: talking about these factions like Corsairs or like maybe even dwarves or like, I'm guessing Ian means like the Kazadoom dwarves. I think one thing for larger points is you're looking at army bonuses that also scale. I've found that, like, you know, we've talked about, like, how good the Hobbit army bonuses are, and I love, like, let's say, for example, the Halls of Thranduil, but if you're going to go with a pure Halls of Thranduil list, it does start to drop off after, I would say, like, six, seven hundred points. If you're going to go a pure list, just because Thranduil's three-inch death bubble only goes so far... And if you're adding more and more elves, that's just more and more elves outside the bubble. And that's just an example. So, you know, something like the Corsairs, their army bonus is going to scale on every single Corsair model that you get, right? So in a way, even though you're adding more regular Corsair captains or regular Corsair models, like, in a way, like, you're getting the army bonus on every single model. So I guess it just scales a lot smoother. I know last episode we talked about Legendary Legions
0: being good at low points. But I think what Richard says applies also to Legendary Legions, where if their bonuses scale, there are some that I would say is better at high points. There are exceptions, because I would say the majority of Legendary Legions are good at 5, 600 or lower. But like Rise of Thade and like every hero that you have benefits from death, and even more before Gambling's Banner was nerfed, because you would exponentially get more might the more heroes that you have. Yeah, so that's an example of like a Legendary Legion that can get better the higher points you go. I guess moving on to talking outside of peerless, at high points is the kind of points level where you're more likely to ally. And, you know, as, as we talked about a few episodes ago in our favorite historical alliances episode, armies with really good ally options or green ally options and can still keep their army bonuses, I think a lot of those are some of the best armies at high points. So like battle five armies, good side Survivors, of Lake Town, Iron Hills, Halls of Randall I think, I think those, when you consider allies, they become one of the best armies in the game. So like Richard mentioned, that Halls of Randall kind of drops off at higher points, but because they have these allied options, I think that they're much better if you ally them rather than play pure at high points.
2: On the allies note, just like in general, I feel like part of the reason it's higher points is more popular is because you can do those alliances because of the the hero valor restriction that we have now like it's it's much harder to do fun and interesting things at low points you're like way more restricted army building wise like if you have to take like 200 130 150 point heroes of valor to try and like make a list it's way harder to do that like 600 and like sub 600
0: especially evil side right evil side has far less heroes of valor I think when we were talking about favorite armies at low points last episode, we kind of agree that in general, evil seems to do pretty well at low points. Would you guys say that they're kind of weaker at high points because of their lack of ally options in general?
3: I think maybe in general, but I would say that like evil tend to have a few like really, really, really strong options that like can take the field. But if you're talking about the average faction, like taking all factions into considerations, then I think, yeah, like, once you start allying, the good factions are much stronger on average. And I think because of that, the best evil lists, a lot of the times you play them pure.
0: Like the ones with really good army bonuses, like pure Corsairs of Ambar. Uh, Pure or Historical Alliance is what I'm saying, because you're relying on the army bonus. A lot of the times you don't have that many options, even for a yellow, so you just want to stay pure. I would say, like, there hasn't been big tournaments in a while, but from, like, the last time we went to international events in 2019, I would say Corsairs of Umbar, Angmar, Goblin Town are, like, the big competitive evil armies.
2: I feel like, the, like Harad is in there. Harad is in there. And then maybe you can do some stuff with, like, Azog's stuff, like... To add the triple alliance between like Aztecs Hunters and the Necromancer and um, the Legion, but that one's way less common, I think, just because the models being harder to get can be more expensive.
0: Also, uh, siege weapons. I know you guys might not be as big of a fan of siege weapons, but you see them at big points. 2019 is the first time I went to a 1,000 point tournament and I went and I just saw like, I don't know, there was like six or seven siege weapons at least. You see a lot more of those for sure. I don't know if you, you necessarily helps an army become more competitive, but that's one of the utilities that you see at higher points.
2: Well, that's a good point. That you get you, you see a lot more stuff that's that's much more unique, right? Because you can build a more well-rounded army. Like you're gonna see more big monsters like Balrogs and like uh, um and stuff like that. Like more siege weapons, like you said, which is it's fun. I guess it is fun because you can get more toys in.
1: We've said similar things about armies from 600 to 800, and then from 800 to 1,000, where we said the actual size of the army doesn't increase as much as we just see bigger profiles in those armies. And I think that's the case with 800 to 1,000 when Charles said, you know, sees a, a lot of siege engines at that level. And I think, well, the biggest thing you could add that you don't have 800 points is a trebuchet that doesn't need in the waves and auto kills anything it hits. So it makes sense. It seems like the last remaining big hole in anybody's army during that jump.
0: Any other um, shouts of armies that we would like to mention or like, being, you would say, one of the top armies at high points?
2: Rivendell slash Last Alliance. I feel like it's pretty pretty potent up when it gets up there. You just get two, like, just absolute bean sticks.
0: Yeah, I guess also that Arnor-Rivendell alliance you did, because Arnor warriors are pretty efficient, right? Arguably under
2: yeah, well, actually, that's a good point, is that I guess there is still a place for those smaller, more limited lists, if they do have, like, really efficient troops, but, like, you're saying, like, you have to ally something else in to cover all their big weaknesses, that, like, once they get to that point that they don't scale to anymore,
1: yeah. Have we talked about Mordor yet? I think we should talk about Mordor. No? Okay. No, I'm I'm good then.
0: Mordor is, Mordor is really good. They also have one of the best, one of the better evil alliance matrices, I think. They have some pretty nice things that other evil armies might want in their army at high points for utility, like Gurits for like deployment buffs, and then black Numenoreans being really cost efficient warriors and kind of really cheap terror that other evil armies want to get. Although you can get that with forces of Umbar as well. And then I guess just magic. Mordor has access to a lot of different casters. That if you're playing an evil list that doesn't have any caster, you'll you can get a lot. You have a lot of choices from Mordor, so. I would put Mordor up in one of the best at high points as well. All right, I guess that has been our discussion on our favorite armies at high points. Thank you all for listening to this podcast and look forward to the next episode.